My prayer is my voice holds out for the rest of the night. <laughs> when we came here on Wednesday, we left Oshkosh, Wisconsin with, with uh, Joe and his wife. Everything was fine. And um, that was on a Wednesday. And I woke up Thursday morning with no voice. Felt terrible. Couldn't keep two thoughts together. And this went on for two days. And I, I told my wife, I said, honey, uh, I'm going to go this morning. She says, no, I think you should really rest. And I said, no, I want to take you in Joe, Joe's Bible study and, and um, hang with the people a little bit. And she says, well, I think you should just rest. Uh, Greg, your, your Bible study this morning was, um, this afternoon, was about the importance of having your morning devotions before you do anything else. And make that a part, even if you have to discipline yourself, it is not natural to do that. Well, we live in a beautiful place on the Fox River in Kakana, Wisconsin. And the way I start my day is, uh, how many of you are familiar with the uh, uh, Wisdom for Today, Pastor Chuck's one-year commentary? Anybody here read it besides me? Well, it's written by Pastor Chuck Smith. Every day... He has one page, and Pastor Chuck can say more in one page than most pastors can in an entire hour. And uh, so I'm, this would have been March 7th. And my wife says, I think you should just rest. And so I, I said, no, I'm going, but I'm going to do my devotions first of all. So I turned to March 7th. And every one of his messages has a title. You know what this one said? Just rest. <laughs> <laughs> so I already told Joe and, and that I'd pick him and his wife up, so I'm coming over here anyway. But um, I got the message, but John and Shauna, this is the Lord's timing, they just happened to be walking in. And John says, how are you feeling? And I said, I got to tell you, John, I'm not feeling very good. He says, we'll pray for you. And I said, and I told them the story about uh, morning devotions. And Sean just said, you might want to lay low today. You still have something. We'll pray for you, but you just stay home. We don't want this here. So if you see me going up to everybody like this, <laughs> it's not that we don't like holy kisses and holy hugs. We do. But um, all you're going to get from me tonight is a Bible study. <laughs> With that being said, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to where we're going through at home, um, the Gospel of John. And as you're turning to God, John chapter um, uh, 13, I'm going to start with a little story <clears throat> that happened to us. I'm going to talk a little bit about if I, if I had a title for the message, I would call it the the early history of departing from the foundations of the church, but primarily within the Calvary Chapel movement. And with that, I want to, this is a prophecy conference. So I would like to begin by explaining the meaning that Jesus gave for prophecy, why we have prophecy. Uh, last Sunday, we were in John 15. Right now, we're, I think it's our fourth time going through the scriptures. I've been there for 40 years now. And when we were in John 
13, if you turn there, first of all, let me draw your attention to verse 19. We read, Now I tell you before it comes to pass, that when it does come to pass, you might believe that I am. Okay, there, John is very unique in his writing. We call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic gospels because they're similar. John is different. He writes around seven miracles, first one being the turning of the water into wine at Cana, and he only picks seven. And then he has seven I am statements. Uh, we just, in John 15, the last one that we had here, if I remember right, is I am the true vine. That is number seven. Number six is I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's the chapter before. But in chapter 13, before he gets there, um, in verse 18, he says, I do not speak concerning all of you, but I know who I have chosen, but that the scripture might be fulfilled. This is prophecy. You can't teach any chapter, hardly any chapter at all, with this verse coming up, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Of course, he's speaking of Judas Iscariot. But then he says, now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you might believe that I am. Well, who is he referring to? The rest of the chapter is about um, Judas Iscariot and him betraying the Lord. And right before he talks about Judas, he says, it's the one who lifted up his heel against me. And I'm telling you this ahead of time. What is prophecy? Prophecy, and I'm quoting now Isaiah 42, verse 9, before the former things have come to pass, and the new things I declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. That's what prophecy is. And only the creator um, can do that. And so he is telling his disciples what is going to happen next. And what happened next? He tells Judas Iscariot what you're about to do, do quickly. None of the guys really understood what was going on. But when they would see Jesus being kissed by Judas Iscariot, they would know, oh, it was Judas. You see, he told us before it came to pass, the one who would lift up his heel against me. Turn to John chapter 14, verse 29. John 14, verse 29. Let's pick it up in verse 28. He's talking about his departure. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to my father, for my father is greater than I. And notice what he says again. Now I've told you before it comes to pass that when it does come to pass, you may believe. What is the purpose of Bible prophecy? It's one of the greatest tools that we have. And the church has gotten away from teaching Bible prophecy. Most of um, mainline Protestantism, all of Roman Catholicism, do not take a literal view of the book of Revelation. They allegorize it or they spiritualize it, but they do not take it literally. I personally believe you can't understand the book of Revelation unless you know the book of Daniel. Thus the necessity of teaching the whole counsel of God. You can't get it unless you have all of it. So you can't pick and choose here and there. 
So the purpose and the reason, I'll quote another one if you guys are taking notes. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. To the dotting of the I and the crossing of the T, or Jesus would say, a jot or a tittle. In other words, you can't take anything out of the scriptures without throwing out this beautiful pattern of the inerrancy of the Word of God. Well, John went down memory lane a little bit with Shiloh, but he didn't know that he was just setting me up for where I'm going with, with the beginning of this. What he didn't mention is between 1968 and 1978, uh, Pastor Chuck uh, sent John out. He was part of the... Was the House of Miracles, John? House of Miracles, first one? House of Miracles was one of the first communal houses in the Jesus movement. I'm a part of um, the Jesus movement. Got saved in 1970, listening to Billy Graham. Really didn't grow in the Lord. I was one of those long-haired, bearded hippies that um, got saved I was not baptized in water or the Holy Spirit until 1972. And one day, I was working this job in Oshkosh. And um, at this time, you can put up, uh, Seth, that this is the first Shiloh house in Oshkosh in 1972. The guy in the far back, be the left-hand corner, that guy's name is David Black. And John sent Andy Papendick, who's from Sheboygan, Wisconsin, out to Sheboygan. Nothing happened. So they thought they would go to a college town. Oshkosh, Wisconsin, is probably the second largest campus in Wisconsin. And this was the first Shiloh house. And some of my favorite memories in life are with these people that I'm looking at right now. And I see Andy in the back. I see Jim Cotton, Debbie Cotton, John Cotton, Mike Sullivan. Uh, some of them with the Lord now. But what we would do, um, and I did go to, to um, the land to go to Bible college, but it's not where I learned the Bible. Where I learned the Bible was every night after we put in a hard day's work, we had a Bible study. That's where I learned the Bible. After the Bible study, you know what we did? We'd go out street witnessing. And uh, that was our way of life during that period of time from 68 to 78. 100,000 people accepted Jesus Christ. It's a documented fact. Okay, now what I'm going to tell you is I just threw out a big number. And what happened to me is I've gotten used to divine appointments. I live for them. Where I know I have nothing to do with the situation. And it's totally orchestrated by God. And I get to be a part of it. So we're sitting here, me and my wife and, and Joe and his wife at the airport in Oshkosh. I'm going to take that 100,000 people, I'm going to boil it down to one person now to make it more real. So we're getting ready to get on our plane. And I look at this guy and I thought, is that Joe? And I look over at my other friend Joe and I said, I think I led that guy to the Lord in 1972, but I'm not sure. Because he's dressed down. 
And he's a very successful man. I'll tell you a little bit about him in a second. And I thought, no, it couldn't be him. He he would never wear blue jeans. But it was bothering me so much, I had to go up to him and I said, Joe? And he goes, Pastor Dwight. (laughs) And he throws his arms around me, gives me a big hug. And I said, Joe Guglielmo, I said, Joe, you got to meet this guy. I says, this is Judge Joe Troy. I'll tell you a little bit about him. He sat on the, um, uh, for 20 years on the Outagamie County Circuit Court judge. Part of our early fellowship, a neighbor of mine. And what happened is, after one of these Bible studies, we went out street witnessing. Well, I didn't know it until eight years later when he was in Appleton. He says, Dwight, you don't know this, but you led me to Jesus street witnessing in 1972. His buddy who was with him is in ministry today because of that fact. Now, everybody that of the, those hundred thousands, they weren't just people hitchhiking across the country looking for a meal or a clean place to sleep. They were college students. We were on a college campus, and this guy was training for law, of all things. So when I ran into him again, he says, Dwight, I don't know if you remember this, but you're actually the guy that led me to Christ in 1972. So I thought it would be fun to go down memory lane a little bit and actually tell one story of one person. But this is the kind of, he could have turned into one of two different people. He went to Madison for his, his degrees. We call Madison the Berkeley of the Midwest. It doesn't get any more liberal than Madison. Okay, So he could have turned out of one of two judges. We became friends. He was with us in the very first church that we were involved with and came, but our Sunday school was so small. He had three little girls. He still would come to our men's prayer meeting. And uh, for 20 years, I'll just give you a little resume because I consider this to be a divine appointment, what happened in Oshkosh before we came out here. And I said, I'm going to work this into the study somehow. (laughs) Okay, this is his resume today. Um, He says, Dwight, we got to talk, but he was, we were boarding the plane, and um, we'll catch up. But he is one of, um, like I said, for 20 years, he is um, on the Outagamie County Circuit uh, Court Judge. Uh, He was trial judge of the year in 2004, one of the best lawyers in America, 2015, and um, He told me one time, he says, every time I leave my office and I have my robe on and I have to make a judgment, he says, I don't get off my knees before I go out there. I will not take another man's life and think about the implications of it without asking God about it first. Now, it could have been the other way, going to a liberal university like Madison. He's also responsible for appointing the Supreme Court judges. That's one of his callings that he has. And it's all just one person of 100,000 people whose lives were changed. No, he's he's not in ministry, but he's a godly judge. And it's one of the things we need in our country today is godly judges who are appointing people to positions of authority in the Supreme Court. And it all could be because one people say, stopped and witnessed to him, that's 48 years ago. And that's what I can't wrap my head around. My body thinks it's 26. I tried to go skiing last year. 
Emphasis on tried. Okay? I used to be a serious downhill skier. I lived in Aspen, Colorado. I was a ski bum. And I didn't ski for 15 years, and I'm saying, Lord, I'm ready for my new body. I'll take it now, please. Take a new voice if you go along with it. But we're talking 50 years ago from 1970. And as I think back on it, I ask the question, could anyone have been able to know that this would be the state of the church 50 years ago? Would anybody have any idea how we ended up the way we ended up? Well, what I'm about to read to you is, who knows what the number one selling book of the 1970s were? Anybody want to take a guess? Anybody know? The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. Okay, I'm quoting what he wrote 50 years ago. And this is, in 1970, The Late Great Planet Earth was published, and many called it... um, Many believed it could shortly happen. I had never read anything like it because it exposed me to Bible prophecy. What I'm about to read to you is about 20 different things that he says is going to happen. So I'm quoting November 1st, 1969. Hal Lindsey warned his readers to look for the following events. Number one, major denominations would uh, be... uh, captured by those who reject the essential truth of the Bible and the deity of Jesus Christ. Denominations would merge together and ecumenicalism would become more prevalent as the historical truths of the Bible are discarded. Ministers losing their power along with their link to the supernatural would resort to social action gimmicks, parenthesis, programs. Followers, especially young people, would flee the mainline churches in droves. Bible-believing Christians would be openly persecuted for their beliefs, sometimes even by so-called ministers of the gospel. We would begin to see a move toward a one-world religion. Jerusalem would become the focal point of a world concern as a Muslim and Israel would begin to fight in earnest over who owns it. We would see movement towards the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem by the Jews. The Midwest, the Mideast, would become a constant source of tension in the world. Do you know that as I speak, there are one million Syrians on the Turkish border that are being massacred? I said one million. And that's what's taking place just as I speak with Erdogan and um, the forces that are gathering. Isn't it interesting that all the game players in Ezekiel 38 are there? We have Turkey, we have Russia, we have Iran. And those are the three main ones um, that are necessary for that scenario to unfold. The Muslim-Israel conflict would be... I read that... Uh, we would see Europe become uh, move more towards uni- unification. And then he says, uh, the communist take- takeover of the world would stop abruptly. He said that 50 years ago. The political power and influence of the Pope would increase. People all over the world would be looking for and yearning for a leader to bring them together. 
The worst famines the world has ever known would break out. Why they're not talking about what's happening in Africa, I have no idea. You have to go to Christian news sources to find out the unbelievable famine that's taking place with this locust of plague. By the way, that just made its way into China, of all places. And we have a famine on unprecedented parallel going on as, as we speak. Moral and social chaos in America would tear apart the fabric of our society and begin to destroy our economy. Drug addiction and abuse would escalate as problems in America and throughout the Western world. Crime, riot, unemployment, poverty, illiteracy, mental illness, and other social problems would increase at an unprecedented rate. I call it exponentially it's happening. And there would be more interest in and acceptance of Eastern religion, astrology, and witchcraft. I'll stop there. But here's my question. He said that 50 years ago. How did he know? He knew for one reason. He knew because he believed in the inerrancy of the Word of God, and Bible prophecy tells something before it happens. So Hal was just simply studying his Bible. And he knew what the future foretold. Pastor Chuck made a film called The Parable of the Fig Tree. Takes it out of Matthew 24. And he says, when you see these things begin to happen, um, and when he talks about the fig tree branching, he says, this generation, the generation that sees what? The nation of Israel reborn, will see the fulfillment of all Bible prophecy. Well, Hal wrote this 50 years ago. Israel had already, by then, become a nation. So he's just looking at the scriptures, realizing, well, it's going to be like it was in the days of Noah. What was it like in the days of Noah? Hal Lindsay's no prophet. Hal Lindsay's a man who believes in inerrancy of the word of God. And he just said, this is what the Bible says, so we'll, we'll just look for these things to happen. How many times has the Lord told us just to watch? The foundation of the Calvary Chapel movement primarily is based on, I think, three main scriptures. Greg did such a good job today as I listened to him. He just set me up and didn't know it. Um, I would say one of the first ones, if you take notes, is Zechariah 4, verse 6. It's not by might. It's not by power. But it's by my spirit, says the Lord. Acts 2, verse 42. I'm not going to go there except to say that Greg did a great job covering what I call the foundation of what the church is supposed to look like. And let's just turn there. I'm not going to expound on it because Greg did such a good job of it. And after the, after, as he quoted the conviction and the saving of the 3,000, verse 42, the foundational scripture, I believe, of Calvary Chapel is they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship breaking of bread, and in prayers. Those four things. And whenever I read that, I say to myself, that's doable. There's, we're not to add to that or take away from that. Um, Bible study. Jesus said it was his custom to go to synagogue. His custom. Our custom should be Sunday mornings. Uh, the other one here is doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, communion. But this one I want to touch on a little bit in prayer. These four things. I remember, Chuck, when there was just maybe 300 Calvary chapels or so. Um, 
Chuck had a great sense of humor. He looked at us and he says, oh, so you're the guys that are going to give up your weekends for the rest of your life. <laughs> That's what he's calling us. Well, you're the guys that are going to give up your weekends now for the rest of your life, right? But the thing that really stuck with me, he says, when you go out and if you plant a church, he says, I want you to get your men and I want you to start a weekly men's prayer meeting. I took that to heart. From the very first day that we started as a church, we had a men's prayer meeting. And unless I'm traveling, I'm at that men's prayer meeting, and I can honestly tell you, I am more blessed on Saturday morning's men's prayer than I am on Sunday morning because of the richness of the interaction with the men that are there. I'll tell you simply how we do it. We go through the Bible. Everybody takes three verses. We, ha- we happen to be in, in uh, Samuel right now. Um, and as we're reading, everybody will take three verses, and then it says to pray one for another. So a guy will read three verses, then we'll go around and we'll expound. Everybody gets to pick a different verse. Now, one of the disadvantages of me being last instead of the first speaker, Doug got to trade places with me, there you are, is everybody's taking all my notes. I don't have any notes left. <laughs> because they've been really covered really well. But when they go around, everybody picks something else different out that ministered to them. And you get to know that individual. And then then they give their prayer request. And the job is, who's ever on my right, that's who I pray for. And who's ever on the next person's right, that's who he prays for. Our prayer meetings last, when we do all that, for two hours, and I can tell you, it feels like 15 minutes. It is rich, and it is wonderful, and it's a highlight of our week, and I don't miss. And uh, so this, this idea of prayer is, I think, the lifeblood of, of the church, and Greg, you did a great job in um, expounding on the rest of it, so I'll just leave that one as is. We know that if you just do that and keep doing it, that the Lord will add to his church. I mean, people come to men's prayer, they say, this is great, we love it. And there's that interaction, that flow. And then we have our time with the Lord. Turn to Acts chapter 20, as long as we're in Acts. Pick it up in verse 27. I would say this would be another foundation stone for the Calvary chapels. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Then he says this, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. What's Paul doing? He's warning them. And he's saying, after I'm gone, there's going to be those that are going to try to pollute and take away and actually draw people after themselves. Remember that for three years I did not cease to warn every one of you day and night with tears. Boy, would I like to hear more Bible studies on that. Warning. With tears? Night and day? That's not happening today. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. I want 
to switch gears and make it a little bit personal at this point with the Calvary Chapel movement. Pastor Chuck also knew that there were those who would seek to change the emphasis that we just read from Acts chapter 2 and take the emphasis off of this foundation that we find in Acts 2 and change it and make it warp into something different. I didn't know Paul was going to be here, and but I'm quoting from Paul Smith's book right now. And what I'm going to... This, by the way... If I had, uh, well, Jim Fletcher says it in the endorsement in the beginning of, of the book, that if he had, if his house was on fire, he could only go back in and get five, this would be, this would be one of them. And um, what Paul does here on page 134, in a brilliant way he lays out, let me start with my own hometown of Appleton, Wisconsin. We have a very well-known university called Lawrence University. But that's not how it started. In 1856, it was a Presbyterian seminary. It started out as a seminary. And today, it's one of the most liberal colleges in the country. What happened? Well, something happened. Something changed, and it caused it to turn into something else. I was around when... John Wimber, let me just tell you a little bit about John. Before I thought I'd talk about him, I better make sure I get all my facts straight. So I went on and Googled him, John Wimber. I was surprised. He was giving his testimony. He was very famous in Las Vegas. He was an extremely brilliant musician. He's responsible for the Righteous Brothers. Let that one sink in. John Wimber is responsible for the development of the Righteous Brothers. You know, you've lost that loving feeling, and they were, they were major. But it's interesting to me that he got saved with that sort of mentality. Well, he ended up, and I'm quoting from Paul Smith, isn't he the sweetest man in the world? <laughs> you know why he's sweet? It's not because Paul's sweet. It's because he's been walking with Jesus for that many years. That's why he's sweet. So I'm quoting here. And I'm quoting from page 134 of of, of Paul's book, of course, New Evangelicalism and the New World Order, one of the best books I've ever read outside the scriptures. Uh, John Wimmer was one of those who wanted changes in the Calvary Chapel movement after, after his conversion to Christ. His spiritual search for church identity led him from Quaker to a short stay with Calvary Chapel. Now, I remember... John, I don't know if you remember, 1979, you were one of the speakers, but so was John Wimber, up at Twin Peaks. So he was a part of the Calvary Chapel movement, but he comes out of Fuller, who by this time had already dropped um, the inerrancy of Scripture. So that's his background, Quaker, short time at Calvary Chapel, and then to organize the vineyard churches with Ken Gogelson, along with C. Peter Wagner At Fuller Seminary, Wimber taught a very popular class called Signs and Wonders. Um, Through the Charles E. Fuller Institute of Evangelism and Church Growth, Wimber led church growth seminars all over the U.S. and the world. He personally explained to me the Bell 
curve concept. This is John talking um, to Paul. And basically what it is, as he observes churches, he notices that they sort of peak at a point, and then they have a downward trend. And what he was into is reaching on that to peak, and then taking it in his own direction. I'll continue. He's highly charismatic. Wimber wanted Pastor Chuck to put a greater emphasis on spiritual experiences and the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit. Pastor Chuck would not move from his primary commitment to teach chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible, with full dependence on the leading of the Holy Spirit. Wimber also tried to convince Pastor Chuck to steer the Calvary Chapel movement into a formal denomination. Each year, a group of Calvary Chapel pastors would meet for prayer and guidance as they plan for the June Pastors Conference. It was during the March 1981 two-day planning session at Twin Peaks Conference Center when Wimber finally realized that Pastor Chuck was adamant and did not want Calvary Chapel to become a denomination. It would remain a fellowship of pastors with a common vision of feeding the flock by teaching through the Bible verse by verse. Wimber was determined to start a denomination. After the June 1981 Pastors Conference, Wimber sent out a letter to all the Calvary Chapel pastors inviting them to join him at Morro Bay, California. The intent was to move forward into becoming a denomination. He also held face-to-face meetings with some of those pastors explaining his plan. Wimber envisioned a charge that would take place and he accused Pastor Chuck of, quote, quenching the spirit. I'm going to come back to that in a second. At that time, there were about 350 Calvary Chapel fellowships. About 40 of those pastors decided to join John Wimber and Ken Goggleson and a small group of vineyards. All right. In 1981, um, Seth, if you would put Chuck's letter up. In 1981, as a result of this attempt by John Wimber, Chuck sent out a letter. I don't know if there's anybody here (laughs) old enough besides John and I that actually remember this. I'm holding it in my hand. This is a letter, and it's up on the screen there right here. And I'm not going to read all of it. But Chuck directly addresses what John Wimber is accusing him of, of squelching the spirit. So I quote Pastor Chuck, this is August 17th. I don't know why I kept the thing all these years, but I did. Um, August 17th, 1981. It's been drawn to my attention that some of the pastors feel that I've been guilty of quenching the spirit of some of the Calvary chapels of their ministries. We want to assure you that we have no desire to quench the work of the Holy Spirit. I believe that the real power of the church is found in the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God in the lives of the believers in God. I do believe that you have only, if you have only the Word of God working in the lives of the believers, you are missing a very vital ingredient. I also feel that if you have the Holy Spirit working in the believers of God without the Word, that you also are missing a very important ingredient. I feel that it is important that we recognize that Calvary chapels are not another Pentecostal church. If you desire to emphasize the experience aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit, it would probably be well 
If you would seek affiliation with Pentecostal churches, Assembly of God, Foursquare, Church of God, because they seem to have a more experience-orientated type of ministry. Where I believe the Calvary chapels have been basically established for God to fill the broad gap between Baptists and Pentecostal churches. We have the Spirit of God working, but the real emphasis is on a solid foundation of the Word on the basis through which the Spirit works as He confirms the Word with signs following, one before the other. But when you reverse the order where the experience and the signs become the primary thrust, you'll be moving towards the Pentecostal position and you should seriously consider dropping the affiliation or relationship with Calvary Chapel. How's that for being tactful? <laughs> Chuck was good at being tactful, but he got his point across. Adios amigos. That's not where we're going. Especially dropping the use of the name of Calvary Chapel. We pray that each of you, that God will guide you in your ministries and will continue his blessing upon your churches and upon your walk and relationship with him. We so look forward to the opportunity of being with you who will be able to go to Israel with us uh, this first part of of December. Uh, Actually, I was on that trip with Chuck. I believe that God has some marvelous blessings. Um, And I'll just leave that um, with that. So getting back to uh, John Wimber and his attempt to um, take us in a different direction, Chuck addressed it. And he encouraged them to, you know, after all these years I look back, and I remember at one of the conferences in light of dealing with this particular issue, he put it to us this way. He says, guys, if you put the emphasis on signs and wonders, this is what you're going to have to do. The experience that you have the next time is going to have to be more dramatic than the one before. And you're going to have to go from one event to another. And if this one over here, the next one, isn't more dramatic, you're going to lose them eventually. I remember him saying that. And I was around in those days. And I remember it started with what they called inner healing. And um, you can have inner healing. And then the next step was, if I remember right, it was casting. Everybody had a demon of something. And it had to be cast out. And facetiously, I use the example of casting the demon of nicotine out of that person who's still smoking cigarettes. And that, that was really going on. Inner healing, casting out demons. And then where it sort of plateaued was in Toronto with the holy laughter. And from there, of course, you have the Kansas City prophets with Bob Jones and Paul Kane. You have the Brownsville Revival that completely destroyed a well-grounded church in just one year as they went down to Brownville to bring back the fire. A solid, godly man, 25 years laying a foundation, building it up to a large church, retires. New pastor comes in, first thing he does is take everybody down to Brownsville to catch the fire and bring it back and had a revival. No, destroyed the church. The pastor of the church I only met one time at a meeting, and he was so arrogant, all I could think of is, I'll give him a year, one year. A year later, he was gone, 
had an affair. Last I heard, he was selling cars in Madison, Wisconsin. Because there was no revival. It was all the hype that was there. And, and unfortunately, uh, uh, the foundation that was well laid was gone. So I look back at Chuck's words all these years later. And you know what? Chuck was spot on. Everything he said about the steps, they were all there. And um, um, there's remnants of it still around today, but I'm not going to waste my time with it. Matter of fact, I'm going to keep my watch on so I can keep track of my time. So we have um, what I see as compromise and the social gospel um, put the next letter up I'll just, I can't read it all but, but I do want to make reference to it what was happening in some of the Calvaries was this one is signed at the bottom love in Christ from the grumpy old fossil that's what Chuck was referring to him to himself. John, you're such a grumpy guy, you know. I was, I was so negative, taking these uncompromising stances on the inerrancy of Scripture. You've got to be flexible in these days. And um, this letter is in response, and anybody can get this from me or Seth afterwards because I, I, I don't want to read the whole letter. But basically... Um, he is upset because some of the Calvaries are having speakers at their conference that are reformed in their theology. And Chuck couldn't believe it. So he addresses it. And um, he... he well, let me just, just read the verse on, on reformed theology. That men like this can teach us how to develop the church through worldly wisdom... They are no longer they're no longer totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit. I'm not suggesting that they're not true believers in Jesus Christ and sincere and loving brothers in Christ, but I do disagree with some of their doctrinal positions. I believe we have many gifted men in our fellowship, and it's not necessary to fe- feature other men. Well, he's he's referring to guys that were coming in. Um, well, I'll name names. Um, John MacArthur and Pastor Chuck are good friends. Did you guys know that? And of course you know he's reforming his theology. And I can guarantee you he will never speak at a Calvary Chapel conference. It's unthinkable. And yet what was beginning to happen is they were being invited. I know a couple of these people personally, some of them were, were shadow people. John, you know who I'm talking about. Who were beginning to lean towards that reform position. Well, Chuck is basically nipping it in the bud. And this is the letter, that second letter, one here. He says, love in Christ from the grumpy old fossil. And that's the way a lot of people perceived him. Um, I'm going to do one little example of that personally because I was, no, I wasn't sort of there. I was there. And I watched a ministry that affected millions of people's lives destroyed. K.P. O'Hannon is the founder of Gospel for Asia. Bill Lynch, in 1978, went and worked on his staff. At that time, there was one church in India, and they were working on building offices. 
because I know Bill from Shiloh. He calls me up. He says, Dwight, I have a friend here. His name is K.P. Johanna. He's from India. We're in Carrollton, Texas now. Can you come up and speak at your church? I said, Bill, we only have 30 people. Tell him to save his money. He says, it doesn't matter. He'll come for five people. I said, you're my friend. Send him up. So the first time I saw K.P. Johanan, he'd never seen a pastor with long hair and a beard before, ever. And all the brothers on the field in India had beards. So we had sort of this connection. He was humble. Uh, Everybody with me when I talk about the 1040 window, the largest unreached part of the world? Okay, he's from India, Kerala, the southern part. And when he saw me with a beard, he couldn't believe that a pastor could actually have a beard. And he spoke to our 30 people and said, for $30 a month, you can support a missionary on the field. As far as I know to this day, we're the only church that ever had 100% people going along with it. Every person in the church. And then KP and I stayed up all night. I introduced him to Pastor Chuck in 1981. He was, again, humble, and um, he invited me to come to India with him, and so I did, and that was my first trip there. Now, fast forward 15, maybe 20 years, and watching it grow from one church, one Bible college, to now 75 Bible colleges, and maybe 70 or 80,000 churches, Okay. And watching as this growth, I've been in, with the exception of Burma, I have been in every state in India. I know the leadership of the Gospel for Asia organization. Five of our families from Calvary Chapel of Appleton gave up their entire life, 25 years of their life, to live in faith and be supported outside with the promise that every penny would go to the field. All right. Um, after going there for many, many years, I saw in the, a scripture that's often quoted, having begun in the spirit, will you now be made perfect in the flesh? I can tell you that he was so impressed with Calvary Chapel that he got it, the dove, but they wouldn't let him have the name. So they're called believers' churches. And I would go every year for many, many years And he wanted me to do one thing, expose Betty Hinn, holy laughter, because what starts in America ends up in India. And then go to the Bible college and give an example of teaching through a book of the Bible. And I could spend a week in one of of these Bible colleges, and then I would move to another state and another one. But I watched God's blessings slowly grow, 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 and bless, and bless, and bless, And we're just talking a phenomenal move of the Lord. And then something happened. And then something happened. Somebody, um, one of the staff members, called me and she said, Dwight, I'm concerned. Her and her husband had been down there for 25 years. KP just wrote a new book. Um, The intro was written by Francis Chan. Everybody familiar with Francis Chan? If I would call... The leader of the social gospel today, his name is Francis Chan, even though he'll do everything he can to try to deny it. It's the social gospels as much as you can get. 
So he does the introduction. And then in between every chapter, there's these little sections, like a, a, a paragraph from uh, St. Teresa. She's a saint in Roman Catholicism who's into levitation. So now I'm getting phone calls from people that are from Calvary Chapel of Appleton and says something good is not happening here. And I call KP and I ask for a meeting uh, to get together. Uh, we were supposed to meet in Canada. The meeting never took place. It's because he did not want it to take place because he knows exactly who Calvary Chapel is. He knows exactly where they were but they found a way to ha- make things bigger. And uh, it was by using a social gospel and not be so direct with the scriptures. Well, they got caught smuggling over $20 million back into the States. I shocked Doug tonight when I told him it has turned into a full on cult. Those are strong words. And yet, that's exactly what it is. And before I would make a statement like this publicly, I ask every one of the family members who went down there, is this true? Is this true? You're on staff. You know. And they said, Dwight, it's even worse than that. They've isolated themselves where nobody can talk to people outside their buildings that they're building. And um, it breaks my heart to say it. But when the scripture is saying, if you get away from the foundation and the inerrancy of scripture and you compromise just a little bit, eventually this is what it can turn out to. Today he's, he's considered the bishop. He looks like a, a Roman Catholic priest. The ones around him have the hooked arms and are dressed in Catholic garb. And um, I could spend much time talking about it, but I just wanted to use it as an example. Um, I'm going to leave off um, Rick Warren. No, how can I leave off Rick Warren? I can't leave off Rick Warren. Okay. How many of you have seen this book before? It's called Deceived on Purpose by Warren Smith. When I first heard Warren speak, basically it's a play on words with... with, um, Rick Warren and a purpose-driven church and a purpose-driven life. And um, when I first read this book and the research that Warren had done on it, I realized if I promoted this book, it was going to cause a division because it exposed Rick Warren also coming out of Full Earth Theological Seminary, telling us that his mentor for 20 years is Peter Drucker, who is not a believer. He's a guru to the CEOs of major corporations in America. His goal was to be an influence to the mega churches. That's what he wanted in on. Also a graduate from Fuller. Paul knows him personally. And what Warren did is he writes this book exposing, blowing the cover off of Rick Warren. And what he, his, 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 his goal and agenda really is. So I said, I'm not going to promote this book without running it past Chuck. And I gave it to Chuck and I said, Chuck, this book is going to cause division. I want to promote it, but I won't do it unless you give me a green light. He says, let me read it. 
And um, I got a phone call a little while later, maybe a week later. He says, Dwight, that book is spot on. I want you to promote it. I remember giving it to John. And I know that John took it and has promoted it also. Has it caused division? Absolutely, it's caused division. But with that being said, um, Rick Warren and Saddleback, that's what you guys have to contend with out here on this, on this side of the country. In the Midwest, it's uh, Willow Creek with Bill Hybels. Both of them have the same mentor, Peter Drucker. Every year they have their annual conference, leadership conference. Speakers that are there are business leaders. They're not even born-again Christians. I, I don't fellowship with the ministerial fellowship any longer in my own town, and I've been there longer than any evangelical pastor. Why, Dwight? Because I got to be the stick in the mud. You see, where it was happening with the numbers was Willow Creek. And every church, one by one, if you came to Calvary Chapel and you didn't like it because I didn't dress up or whatever, or you didn't like our style of music, 15 years ago, I could have said, you can go to this church, this church, or just search. They're solid in the word, no problem. I can't say that anymore because they've all been seduced by Willow Creek. By the way, Bill Heibel took a fall. And his, his wife is a strong supporter of Palestinianism and anti-Israel. Uh, having, having said that, um, they're responsible... Only cost you three hundred bucks to go in and and take in one of their leading sessions, and I like what John or whoever said it here is that this conference doesn't cost anybody nothing, and that's the way it should be charging for the gospel. So, long story short, with that, um, this has influenced again the entire country. Um, Pastor of the Year Rick Warren, uh, America's Pastor. And um, we see how it has crept into the church. I've got to keep going here. Um, put up the chart real quick, Seth. Of uh, Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Revelation chapter 2 and 3. The chart that you see up there, you might have to squint a little bit to be able to see it well. <laughs> You're going to have to squint really good to see that. <laughs> Trying to find my map here. It is. Thank you. If you're in Revelation 2 and 3, the book of Revelation was written by John 96 AD. It's divided into three sections. The key verse is Revelation 1, verse 19, where the Lord tells John, write the things that you've seen. That's chapter 1. He saw the Lord in all of his glory. And then he tells him, write the things that are, present tense. That's chapters 2 and 3. And then beginning with chapter 4, it goes from all red letters to all black letters. Then he says, write the things that will be hereafter. So we're living in chapters 2 and 3. These seven um, churches that you see up on the chart, I'm not going to go through. I just want to touch on a couple of them because four of them, if you can look real close to the last four, you'll see this V coming down. And as Jesus talks to the church of Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, the language there indicates that these four will be in existence when the Lord returns. 
Now, somebody's already made the point that we're sure that Laodicea is a last-day church. Well, I do hold to the position that there is a timeline chronology of these churches beginning with Ephesus. A hundred years had not already gone by, and John's got to write to a church that he helped find that disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he referred to himself. He had to write to this church and said, you guys have left your first love. You didn't lose it, you left it. And he says, you better repent or else. Now those are some pretty strong words. I look at that time frame. The last four churches all seem to be in existence when the Lord returns. In other words, there will be four types of churches in existence at the Lord's coming. Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I'm going to go through them real quickly. The first one, Thyatira, well, church-wise, Ephesus would have been from 100 AD, and then the suffering church, Smyrna. Between 100 and 312, up to the time of Constantine, millions of people died in the Colosseum by lions, and uh, they were the persecuted church. And then Pergamus, the tolerant and unholy church, would have been from Constantine to the papacy in about 312. I want to start with Thyatira because this is the first time it gives an indication until I return is the wording there indicating it'll be in existence when Jesus returns. Now Thyatira, if you look at that, let's look at verse... Eighteen and to the angel of church of Thyatira write. These things says the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, your love, service, faith, and your patience, and your works. The last are more than the first. He actually gives them credit, and you know it's true. Mother Teresa is honored in India because of her hospitals and orphanages. Um, She's not a supporter of Jesus, by the way. I I bet there's a lot of you who didn't know that. But she's respected for doing good works. But then he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Who was Jezebel? Well, she married Ahab. Introduced Baal worship to Israel. So now we're bringing something in that God never intended to be. And who's responsible for it? This woman named Jezebel. Now here it's referred to as sexual immorality, but it's relating it to Jezebel. So what are we talking about here? Something is entering into the church that was never in the scriptures, nor ever intended to be. Uh, Seth, if you put it up, I don't know if they'll be able to see it, but I'm going to give you 22 things very quickly. What is adding to the scriptures, and has never been a part of scripture before, and I realize that it's hard to see, so let me just do it quickly. There was no infant baptism until 431. There was no mass until 500. 
Purging of Sin, 593. Prayers for the Dead, 600 AD. Prayers to Mary, 600. Worship of Images, 786. Declaring Saints, 995. Mandatory Mass, 1000. The Celibacy of Priest. Boy, that got him in a lot of trouble, huh? 1097. The Rosary invented, 1090. Inquisition, 1184. Indulgences sold. By the way, that's what built St. Peter's Basilica in 1190. Transubstantiation, 1215. Confession to priests, 1215. Reading the Bible, forbidden, 1229. Purgatory, 1438. Tradition, given authority, 1545. Adding books to the Bible, Mary Born Without Sin, 1854. The Popes Are Infallible, 1870. And Mary Can Save You, 1922. And Mary's Body Never Decomposed, 1950. These teachings are not accepted by biblical Christianity because they're simply not taught in the Bible. But what, is it, what does the Lord call them here? Spiritual immorality. Now having said that, there were actually some who they're told who did not hold this tradition and I will put no other burden on you. But he says, if you don't repent, I'm going to cast you into great tribulation. I believe, because of uh, Revelation 17 and 18, that the one world church that we're headed to is going to be headed up by this pope, Amen. the one that we're looking at right now. Amen. And I know that the Antichrist is going to destroy Rome because he's jealous of it, and he will have nobody else worshipped except himself. So where is the headquarters of the Roman Catholic Church? Rome. So I have no doubt that what we have in view here is the Roman Catholic Church going into. They're not saved. One, my friends, 1.2 billion Catholics in the world today. And they're, they're going there, and the world is clueless on how to help them. But again, going there, I'm not even going to touch on Sardis, so I'll get right into Philadelphia before I quickly wrap this thing up here. Um, Sardis will be here. That's basically uh, dead Protestantism. And get to Philadelphia here. Philadelphia is one of two churches where nothing bad is said about them. Um, I believe the time frame of this would have been roughly 750 to the rapture. If we pick it up, in verse 7, and the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the keys of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have put before you an open door. No one can shut it, for you have little strength. Will you notice here that we're not talking about a mega church in the last days? Amen. If you're teaching and not compromising, becoming social, or whatever, don't expect your numbers to grow. Expect them to do just the opposite. Because it's been mentioned several times, they will not endure sound doctrine in the last days, but will gravitate towards people who tell them what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. I haven't asked for an amen all night. 
Amen? Amen. Amen. And you're going to see more of that coming. Because the trend is, if you want to be successful, then tell them they can have their best life now. That's what Joel Osteen is doing. You can have your best life now. Have you ever noticed that every book he's ever written has either you, me, or I in the title? Go ahead, check it out. You, me, or I. And what is it? It's the largest church in America today. 48,000 people. Why? Because they tell people what they want to hear. So, I take comfort and they have little strength, but they've kept my word. There it is. They have not denied my name. And um, the Lord tells them that he's going to make them a pillar in the temple of his God. And because you have kept my command to preserve, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which is to come upon the whole world. Notice, this trial isn't localized. We're talking the tribulation. And he says, I'm going to keep you from it. Well, how in the world do you keep from being a part of it if it's in the whole world? Answer, be taken out of the world. In a moment, a twinkling of an eye. My friends, the rapture has to happen. God is long-suffering, but how much of this he'll put up with, I don't know. But in the meantime, I want to finish well, and I don't want to compromise. And I could care less about the numbers. But that is not the pressure that's put on. 1,500 pastors a month leave the ministry in America. 1,500 every month they leave because they're discouraged, because they don't know how to do it, so they gravitate towards the Willow Creeks or the, or, or, the, or the Saddleback Churches. Greg, you did a good job with summarizing the last one, which is Laodicea, and I'll wrap it up with this one. Laodicea, we find, and everybody's in agreement that it's the last day church, and Greg's um, um, exhortation on it, he covered very well when he talked about being lukewarm and not hot or cold. But he says to this last day church, I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you're one or the other, but you're not. So then because you're not and you're lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. But because you say I am rich, I become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I notice here the church had one perception of themselves and the Lord had a completely different perspective of them. They thought everything was fine because they held to and believed in the prosperity gospel that God wants everybody healthy, happy, and wealthy. And they didn't, didn't realize that they were wretched, poor, blind, and naked. And what always stuck out with me with these verses is we always quote this as a witnessing verse, but it's, this is the one where he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's on the outside. He's not in the church. And as a result, he wants in. And uh, he exhorts them to come in and dine with him, and he with, he with me. One or the other. Turn with me to Second. Peter, one last verse, Second Peter chapter 3. 
I'll read the first three verses. Beloved, I now want to write to you the second epistle, and both of which to stir up your pure minds by way of remembering, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. And what are they saying? Where is the promise of his coming? You guys have been talking about the rapture since Hal Lindsey's book. Where is it? And now, the sarcasm is simply off the charts when it comes to talking about the rapture of the church. Where is the promise of his coming? And then they willfully forget that God brought judgment once before and he's going to bring it again. I want to leave it with a therefore. Just in the things that we've talked about overall in the conference as as we look at this um, departure from the faith, there's always a remnant that refuses to compromise. So we have a therefore, seeing that the heavens and the earth are going to pass away someday. Peter says in verse 11, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? This was the theme of the conference. What should the church look like? And what should it hold to? Well, in light of what's going to take place, um, we're being exhorted to Peter here, what manner of people and what manner, might I say, the church should be. It should be uncompromising when it comes to the inerrancy of the Bible. Probably the most important thing I can say tonight. Another good place for an amen. The inerrancy of Scripture. Knowing things that are going to happen before they happen. You see, if we want to be the church of Philadelphia, okay, a little strength but you haven't denied my name. Therefore, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. You know what that's called? Hope. Hope in a world that has no hope. I have a book here that is the same. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The book kind of ends with a warning. It said, you better be careful. You better not add one word to it. You better not take one word away from it. I mean, that's pretty clear. You don't need a translation in the Greek for that, do you? No, it's just very, very straightforward. So what's my job? Well, my safety net, what I've taught, learned from John, Pastor Chuck, is if you just stick your nose from one chapter to the next, and uh, I get home, I left off in 14, I'm, I know I'm going to be in 15 when I get home. And I'm going to do that all the way. If the Lord comes before I get to Revelation, which I'm really hoping he does, <laughs> then I know where I'm, I'm going to be. And here's my encouragement if you're a pastor here tonight. They're out there looking for you. We get phone calls all the time. I found out that we're the only church in town that actually teaches Bible prophecy that will even touch on it. I know Jan Markell is a personal friend. She just wrote an article. 98% of the churches in America do not believe in a pre-trip rapture. 98%. And it's foolishness to them. And yet, should we be surprised? No. Um, I don't expect things getting better. 
But uh, as a result with the therefore, we are, verse 12, to look for and hastening the coming of, of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be dissolved and the earth will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, I like that. All this heavy stuff's going to happen. But nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which dwells righteousness. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, without spot, and blameless. And count that the long-suffering of the Lord of salvation, as our beloved uh, brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. And so Peter ends it with that exhortation. Uh, and since you know these things beforehand, beware, lest you, any of you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away into the error of wicked. But, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever Amen. They're looking for you. We get phone calls all the time. I found out that we're the only church in town that actually teaches Bible prophecy. That will even touch on it. I know Jan Markell was a personal friend. She just wrote an article. 98% of the churches in America do not believe in a pre-trip rapture. 98%. And it's foolishness to them. And yet, should we be surprised? No. Um, I don't expect things getting better. But uh, as a result with the therefore, we are, verse 12, to look for and hastening the coming of, of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be dissolved and the earth will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, I like that. All this heavy stuff's going to happen. But nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which dwells righteousness. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, without spot, and blameless. And count that the long-suffering of the Lord of salvation, as our beloved uh, brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. And so Peter ends it with that exhortation. Uh, and since you know these things beforehand, beware lest you, any of you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away into the error of wicked. But, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.